It's time for the tactics meeting, episode 15, Wildlife Response, with Jenny Schlieve and Chris Battaglia from Focus Wildlife. So what goes on in the wildlife branch? How do we go about mounting a response to oiled wildlife? What is involved in the assessment, capture, transport, and rehabilitation? It's all coming up next on this amazing episode. Welcome to the show, Jenny, Chris of Focus Wildlife. Jenny, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jenny Schleitz. I'm the Program and Rehabilitation Manager with Focus Wildlife. And thanks for having us on, Dan. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm and excited to have you. Advance for the dog nail bed sounds going across the floor. That's the way podcasts are. Sure, in my house. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if it was professional quality audio, we'd be doing it from a studio or something, and that's not what we're doing. Right. Chris, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, Dan. So this is um, Chris. I'm Patalia. I'm also, yeah, thank you for having us. It's uh, very exciting. And um, so, yeah, I'm the uh, the president, sort of co-founder of, uh, of Focus Wildlife. So, Chris, what is Focus Wildlife? How long has it been in existence and what was your inspiration for starting it? Um, Focus Wildlife uh, came about in, I would say it was a 2005. I had uh, worked previously for International Bird Rescue and Research in uh, California. Um, met my wife actually there as well and uh, we our sort of her vision and my vision was to create something so-called professional wildlife response um, in the past it's always been that this was the nonprofits they got stuck with the with the oil birds didn't quite know didn't have the, the ability nor did they have the, the facility to um, to rehab um, you know, while all the animals, there was, you know, safety concerns, and all that good stuff. Um, one of my wife, she was actually, uh, had worked in a rehab center up in Vancouver Island and always thought that there was a need for uh, oil wildlife response up in the Pacific Northwest. And hence, you know, we moved up north and uh, to Washington, Accordus in that sense, and, um, you know, started Focus Wildlife. Jenny, how did you get started in wildlife rehabilitation? What was your first introduction to oiled wildlife? Uh, I started at a nonprofit. Uh, I started in, uh, I think, back in 1992 or 93 at the Paws Wildlife Center in Linwood, Washington, which is still in existence today. It's a um, full-scale um very good wildlife rehabilitation center that does a, a wide range of species. So I started there as a volunteer, worked my way to an intern, and then became staff, and then um, finally uh, became rehabilitation manager. And it gave me a really solid basis in wildlife rehabilitation, um, in part because there were excellent staff members and veterinarians and, and teachers there. Um, but in part also because of the range of species that I got to work with. So everything from urban wildlife and water birds to large carnivores, bears, seals. Um, and I happened to sort of fall in love with the water birds and the seabirds. 
Um, that center was also co-founded by Kurt Klumpner, who uh, worked for International Bird Rescue for many years, and then most recently, um, UC Davis World Wildlife Care Network has been a long time, really excellent responder. Chris and Kurt go way back in their history together as well. And so there was an immediate link in that piece that sort of um, led me to working more with seabirds. And we used to get a lot of seabird wrecks uh, back in the early sort of late 90s, early 2000s. We would see a lot of um, seabirds that would wreck up on the shoreline and people would come in and assist pause with working with those birds. And I really fell in love with that process. And a lot of that process was very similar to working with the world wildlife. So I started with Focus in 2008. Um, I was actually called to see if I could help with a, a spill that Focus was working in the oil sands. So my, my first job for Focus was um, spending <laughs> three or four months up in the oil sands in Northern Alberta. And I uh, have just really enjoyed it ever since, so. What, what is a seabird wreck? You said you were responding to wrecks. What does that mean? So that's a, a term that refers to like a large group of downed birds. So they sort of just, they're turned to wreck. So um, it's fairly a common occurrence that we would see either a seasonal die off or a mortality event. Um, or if there were seasons where we started having um, like really warm ocean summers uh, where there would be less food availability for a lot of the seabird species, they would starve basically and wash up on shore. And those birds would be captured and then brought into the rehabilitation center. So we would literally see hundreds of birds come in in one instance and, and hence it's, um, it's similarity to an oil spill where you're seeing a, a mass grouping of, of animals that have a similar um, injury or cause for admission all come in at the same time or over a period of, of just a few days. Chris, can you describe the process of, of rehabilitation? I mean, we, we have a, an oil spill incident. I activate Focus Wildlife and you put your team in motion and what are the steps there what does that look like um i guess especially right now you know where we've kind of formalized all this in washington state which is interesting so these these uh, these uh, sort of steps are much more formal now than they were like a year ago not even a year ago right it's just a couple months i guess and so I think the the first and foremost is we have people on sort of I would say stamp I would you know a team that we activate and right now we basically you know we do the first first thing we do is uh, do an assessment so we get there as, as quickly as we can and um, we want to make sure that we can actually or ascertain what is happening you know what is are there animals impacted you know what is how much oil is there in the water what's uh, what's going to happen so we can actually uh, send it up the chain or uh, up to you know the instant command uh, for ops and planning and all that to let them know what to expect and also what more to um, what who else to activate uh, that's not just uh, personnel that's also equipment so I think it's a uh, it gets the spill off to to the right start. I, I feel like it's hugely important, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that this is you know 
a step that's officially recognized uh, in Washington now as well. We do the assessment, right? We go within whatever the time frame is. We appear on site with the people. And then everybody kind of knows what to expect after that as well. You know, how many hours after that we're going to um, um, ramp up in terms of equipment and personnel as well. So, Jenny, what is the beginning of the rehab? We've done the assessment and we have oiled birds. And now you're going to start the capture process, sure. transporting back to uh, whatever the facility is, whether it's a fixed facility like your facility in Anacortes, which we'll get to in a minute, sure. um, or a, a mobile facility like the one set up with MSRC's equipment or Clean Rivers equipment or well, Fish and Wildlife's equipment. What does that step look like? So, so maybe if we go back just a second to some terminology. So, so we would typically call that wildlife response. And it's because wildlife response is sort of the overarching term that holds all of those phases that you're talking about. So with the wildlife, the initial wildlife impact assessment being that first phase that really is, as Chris said, gives you an understanding of the on the ground conditions and sort of prepares us for not only the let's say the individual oiled birds that we're seeing immediately, but what the potential is for oiled birds, right? So if we go into an area where there's an oil spill and we see seven oiled birds, um, that doesn't mean there's only seven oiled birds in the spill, right? If there's a thousand birds that are not too far away from where we see the trajectory, then we know that we need to be planning for a thousand birds or, or more than that, rather than planning for seven birds. So that initial impact is really critical to give us an understanding of all of the rest of the phases that follow. So from capture through to release. We're really um, talking about scale. Yeah, you're talking about understanding the scope and scale of the response and therefore how we can best um, activate personnel and equipment to adequately respond to that so that we're ahead of the game rather than behind the game. And it's really critical in wildlife response to be um, as far ahead as you possibly can. <laughs> Um, one, one of the reasons for that is that there's a really limited period of time, especially for, um, for some of the seabird species uh, and, and a lot of the, the seabird and waterbird species, there's a really limited amount of time that we have to get to them before we start to see secondary effects impact them negatively um, to the point where they drown or die of starvation. Um, so as Chris said, that, that first piece is really getting a critical understanding of the scope and scale through the um, wildlife impact assessment. And then from there, developing a plan. So everything that we do has a plan. We don't just go out and start swinging nets or, or look to immediately capture birds. We get an understanding of the field and where we need to look for wildlife. So there may be oiled wildlife directly in the impact area where the spill began, but those birds are often still flighted or they may be marine mammals that are you know, able to move in a certain direction or um, aquatic mammals that have lodges. So there are other areas that we need to be looking. So oftentimes our field parameters are larger than the actual um, spill zones that, that cleanup is happening in, right? So we can be looking several miles away for oiled birds. Um, so that capture piece is really tricky, and, and this is actually Chris's area of expertise, but 
um, you know, we have to look at what species they are, where they, um, where they like to loaf or rest, where they get their food, how they get their food, and then figure out the best mechanisms for capturing them. If it's setting a trap, if it's, you know, using a net and doing on-water capture or doing shoreline capture. Um, but basically we have a series of teams that go out and do um, daily reconnaissance looking for oiled wildlife in a grid-like pattern um, and then working through the sort of plan that the, the field group supervisor has set out for how to approach um, the capture of specific species um, and, and species in specific areas because obviously um, when you're talking about capture and, and talking about any sort of field um, field work, there are potential safety hazards and that comes up frequently during capture and also during um, hazing and deterrence, which is another sort of piece of that field operations. Um, so that's a, a big part that plays into it. Um, from the field capture, once birds are actually caught and are in hand, depending on where the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center is set up, if it's our facility in Anacortes or if it's you know, something, uh, another facility elsewhere, um, we may set up a field stabilization unit to ensure that the animals that we've captured are stable enough to be transported to a rehab facility. Um, so if we're working in, you know, Eastern Washington, um, and we're going to transport birds to Anacortes, we want to make sure that for that drive or for that flight that those birds are stable. Um, so, you know, just basic gross decontamination of oil in any oil in their eyes or their mouth, um, giving them some fluids, making sure that we can get their temperature up to, you know, an average body temperature for them, um, and then transporting them to the rehab center. The rehab piece is actually this much more concise piece that, ha that happens within a facility where um, we get some initial, uh, basic blood work and health parameters for every single individual that comes in. We take evidence on every single individual animal, whether it's a reptile, a bird, or a mammal. Um, so that's a photo and a fur or feather sample or a scale sample. Um, and they get an individual case number that individually identifies every single animal that comes into um, a rehab center. So if you have five animals or 5,000 animals, all of those animals are individually tracked. Um, and then we take blood work on each animal um, and sort of get an understanding of its overall health and then spend the next, you know, 48 to 72 hours, sometimes more, just stabilizing them to prepare them to be washed. Um, and then they go through the wash process and then through a whole conditioning process. And all of that is sort of specific to their species. So birds are conditioned um, differently than mammals and um, passerine songbirds are, are conditioned differently than water birds just because they have different types of waterproofing. Um, so there's a whole bunch of pieces within that, that concise, concise quote unquote, uh, rehab piece. And the wash is simply a part of it. Um, so it's a really discrete piece in this overall rehabilitation piece, um, but it isn't effective on its own. You have to stabilize the animals beforehand and they have to work on their waterproofing and the conditioning phase um, after wash. So washing an animal is, is a piece of it, um, but it doesn't work as, unless it's in this overall process. Yeah, I was reading about the 
uh, washing process they were using in uh, Westport or in, in Ocean Shores after Nestucca, and they had pools set up and they were filled with city water, mm -hmm. which turned out to be uh, heavier water. And they'd put the birds in and the birds would sink. And yes. they couldn't yeah. figure out what was going on. Where's, where's the, and, and it was about the, can you speak to that? That was fascinating. <laughs> I can't, Chris, you were at Nostucca too, weren't you? Oh, I was. Oh, you were at Nostucca, yeah. Yeah, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of facility parameters that are, are critical. And one of those is water hardness or water softness. And so what can happen, and, and Nostucca is one of the places that we learned about it, um, or came to understand it more fully. Um, one of the things that can happen is that if you have really hard water that has a lot of salt crystals or a lot of minerals in it, and you also have um, birds, especially if birds that are coming out of the wash with any soap residue left on them, those heavy minerals and salts will bind to um, the soap molecules, and that creates an obstruction within the architectural definition of the feather itself. And so the thing that makes a bird waterproof is actually sort of a zipping up of the barbs and barbules that come off of the feather shaft. And so it happens at a microscopic level. So um, if that's disrupted, if there's something that is, is keeping them from zipping up individually, um, if there's, you know, these this hard uh, minerals and, and calcium deposits or whatever it is that's through that process, then they can't physically do it without preening all those feathers. So, so when you wash a bird, um, the bird comes out and it's just that you've removed the contaminants. The birds are not waterproof yet, right? So the reason you set up a pool is to allow them the process of preening all the way through their feathers. And if you do that with um, a hard water pool, it takes longer for birds to preen out those heavy minerals that combine with the soap. So it's not that, um, so in other words, any bird that isn't waterproof, you know, after the wash, that they aren't, if you put them in the water and you don't watch them, they can drown regardless of whether you have soft water or hard water. Um, but it can happen more readily with a hard water situation. Yeah, I was reading about how they would sit there, they put them in the pool, then they'd watch them. They were watching for sinkers. Yep, we, we still do that. That That is still the process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a thing, we, you can lose birds. I mean, I've, I've lost yeah, birds. Down. Like I set an alarm for every 15 minutes and every 15 minutes, I go and I make a round of every single pool and double check that the birds are floating, that they have appropriate haul outs, that there isn't but anybody that's sinking. And if they're starting to sink, you pull them and you put them back in a drying pen. So there's a lot that goes into this process of, of getting birds conditioned. And, and that's another reason to, to sort of reiterate that the wash simply takes away the product. It takes away whatever the contaminant is. It doesn't make the birds waterproof. Um, so we set up a situation in the conditioning phase that allows the birds to recondition their feathers and get their waterproofing back. And what they need is water and to be just monitored and you know, given um, supportive care. And they do the rest of the work. That is really interesting. And now I'm forevermore going to think of these seabirds as boats with a, a watertight <laughs> hull 
right? That, that's, uh, I never right. thought of them like that before. Yeah, it's actually a good analogy. If you think about the way that paint on a, on a hull of a wooden boat, right? So if you think about paint that's starting to come off and you have a boat that's built in 1920, and so some of the, um, the ways that the, that the actual, um, you know, the, the lath on the boat has been put together and the paint is the thing that's covering it up so it can't get into the hull, that's what it's like for waterproofing birds, right? I mean, you're, you're that, that um, those feathers and the architectural structure of those feathers is what keeps water away from birds' skin, right? So they don't feel cold water on their bodies ever when they're waterproof, except for their feet. That's really I it. I didn't know that. I just, I thought the water did go through the skin. No. <laughs> See, once you get, once you start, it's hard to stop. It is, it's an addictive little thing to learn how fascinating birds are. Like, um, so birds have different levels and different types of feathers. So um, if you look at songbirds, like a lot of songbirds have these areas where they don't have any feather tracks. So they don't even have the follicles to produce a feather. So the, there are these areas where you can see right down to skin or areas of apteria is what it's called. Um, and so they have a different level of waterproofing. So they need to be waterproof to the extent that when it rains, they don't get soaking wet, right? And so they still have to preen all their feathers, but they preen them to cover that skin. And it creates like this little um, area where the surface tension on the feathers doesn't allow water to come in. But if you look at a duck, there is no apteric area on their body, right? So they have down, then they have these covert feathers, then they have, you know, um, this whole massive body just entirely filled of feathers that keep them nice and warm and dry. And that's what, um, you know, that's what allows them to stay warm in cold water. We should build right. wetsuits like that. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then I was reading about the feeding process, the holders and the tubers. Do you still do it that way? Yes. And the and the need to be extra cautious about where their beak is going and keeping them away from your eyes. <laughs> so, yeah. So handling skills are a are a thing that's really critical in in the rehab portion and in the field portion, right? I mean, so. Um, Tubing a bird is a simple process by which you, you know, take a, a specific um, slurry type of nutrition that is developed specific to the species and their condition, and you put a tube down their throat um, into the beginning of their stomach, and then you pump it in, right? So it's kind of gross, but um, something that you do throughout rehabilitation is a very common practice. But... Um, handling those animals is really a critical piece of that. If you don't have a good handler, whether it's in the field or during the wash process, during the stabilization process, it's more likely that you can injure the bird or that the bird can injure you. Where do you get all these people? I mean, all of a sudden you've got thousands of birds and it's not like people are out there handling ducks every day. Clearly you don't have a thousand paid employees on staff waiting around for an oil spill or a seabird wreck event. So where do all these people come from? 
Well, that's actually interesting. Um, you know, when I sort of started out to my background, you know, same kind of as Jenny, you kind of get, you know, I want, I just showed up at a spill. I was a freshman in, uh, in San Francisco and there was a spill across the bay and, you know, I basically wanted to help and uh, went there. And then first thing they asked me is, well, do you know how to wash a bird? And I said, no. And they said, well, then we don't really need you. <laughs> I was like, well, what do you mean? Where do I learn how to wash a bird? And I said, well, it's through experience. And it's like, well, you know, it's the same old like getting a job that you get. Okay, if I don't get, how can, if you don't give me the job, I don't get any experience. And, you know, what comes first, chicken or the egg? But anyway, I kind of uh, stuck around anyways. And I asked him, I said, well, what can you, can you help me? Uh, can I help cleaning? And they were fairly taken aback that somebody actually just wanted to clean you know, cleaning cages, um, because normally everybody in a spill that comes in, I can guarantee you 99.9% .9 of people, all they want to do is wash birds. Nobody I've encountered comes in and says, you know, okay, well, I can do paperwork or whatever it is. They all want to wash birds. But anyway, so yeah, so I started out doing that and eventually kind of worked my way up the chain or the ladder and, and ended up um, helping wash, you know, helping to wash and kind of got an expert doing that but yeah it's 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 a skill that you can learn i always say and i know jenny probably yeah well, i think she agrees with me as well it's in a in a general sense it's not rocket science you know i can take you to side and we can work together and there are certain rudimentary tasks that you can learn that i can teach you and um i think the biggest one that's probably what you can't teach is um you know being comfortable about around animals wild animals that don't want to be cuddled that don't want to be held and um and there's it's funny that you get, get uh, sort of develop, develop an eye for people who actually can do that you know you can so come over can you hold this and like jenny said it's critical that you actually have somebody that's actually good at holding say a loon with a beak you know yay long and like you just pointed out they can poke in the eye okay nowadays we wear safety glasses in the good old days to I remember we didn't even wear gloves when we washed birds, right? And so, like, horrific. But um, so I think that sort of, yeah, we just, you have to train. And so if we have a massive spill, um, we would be reliant in a sense of, yeah, we have, you know, the volunteer system that comes in and there is a whole lot of teaching going on. We cannot by ourselves um, two feet bird like uh, you know they have to be two feet set individual birds have to be two feet two fed six six or seven times a day and you can't do this with a team of five people or ten you have to teach you're you do absolutely have to do that so and i think that's what it is and yes we do have people who are specializing or have or, or uh, and, you know like though everybody else in in the business so to speak right to have people on everybody can pull in and help that can help but these are few, far, far and few in between. But the way we've set it up now and with the, you know, the size of the spills, you know, the, the big ones are far and few in between. We are, have been basically the past 15 years, um, luckily, never have, we haven't really had to rely on volunteers as much as in, in the past. Chris raises a really critical point, which is that any, any wildlife response organization, regardless of who they are, has staff that has a great deal of experience in um, 
in either rehabilitation or the field aspects or any part of it. But when there's a, a spill that really requires that many people, you really do rely on the community to backfill that need. So whether it's um, volunteers who currently like volunteer at rehabilitation centers or have volunteered at a prior incident, um, or just people that are interested from the community and interested in helping, those are the people that you bring them in, you train them, and you sort of, you know, as you do with any volunteer base, um, you figure out what they're good at and you set them up for success within that position. So it might be somebody, like I've had a volunteer before who was only interested in doing laundry. That was the only thing that she wanted to do. And laundry was a very critical piece for us, right? But um, that, that was the thing that she felt most comfortable at and she rocked it. That was really helpful for me. Um, there are other people who are really, you know, within a couple of days really are very, very good at tubing birds and I can trust them to start taking over running part of that floor. So it's just a question of, of really bringing in the community as much as you can, training them and providing them enough su um, supervision and support to really be able to provide enough people to respond to a spill that, you know, impacts a couple thousand animals. We talk about birds most of the time, but what about mammals? Like even, even in the big drills that we often conduct for oil spill response, we frequently limit the wildlife rehab portion of the tabletop to birds because we don't yeah. want to deal with the mammals. So it's a pet, it's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> a pet peeve. Excellent. So we've hit, we've hit the right topic. Let's shift to mammals. Let's start with the little ones, you know, otters, seals. Yeah, so there's there's sort of a couple of differences and, and where we started to see a lot of this changing is that there was a shift um, after some of the rulemaking around um, double-hulled ships. You know, we started to see a decline in some of the um, marine spills and started to see an increase in some of the inland spills that were caused by pipeline leaks or um you know, rail incidents. So that shifted the species matrix that we see now in a lot of the incidents. So um, where before we were dealing with not just water birds like ducks, but seabirds like grebes and loons and murres who really are never out of the water at all. Um, and that shifted now to where we see more waterfowl and wading birds and some passerine species. Um, and we start to see a lot of the aquatic mammal species like muskrat, beaver are quite common, um, river otter as well. Um, those are the species that we see a lot in inland spills. Um, as, as well as working in, in Washington, we also respond a lot in Canada. And, and there's a, you know, in the inland spills in Canada, we, I was thinking, you know, back in 2016, we did a spill in the North Saskatchewan River and we had 22 beaver. Um, and they're a really interesting species because they're highly, highly territorial um, as adults and you can't house them together. So with most bird species, you can, um, you know, co-house them. So if you have 20 geese, you can put them all in, you know, one or two pens. Um, but with beaver, um, they're adult, highly territorial and can get out of anything and chew their way out of anything. And they're actually... Um, aren't prone to attack, but can be very dangerous when they do. So, um, you know, we had to house 21 beaver in horse trailers because they were metal, 
I couldn't chew through them, but they were easy to clean and we could get them. So it really, and the reason I mentioned that is it really goes back to that wildlife impact assessment, right? So if you don't, at the beginning of the response, understand that beaver are a possibility and you might see mammals in the, the spill, um, then it, it becomes a bit late if you catch one, but you have absolutely no means to house them because you didn't realize that they were gonna be a part of the species that could be impacted by the event. So um, that, that impact assessment is really critical to understanding what species you might see and how you need to house them so you can make sure that you have that equipment ready for them. So now do you have yeah. a beaver capture housing rehab plan template in your toolkit yeah sure we do well, we, we certainly know how to i think like every spill right it's interesting in terms of just bringing those of the mammals as well right there's that's you know we always say well we know right it's every every spill is different uh, you learn and you move on and then hopefully you can one t sometime you, you can reach back and apply what you've learned and with the beavers the same thing i think we don't not necessarily have a template per se but we have a lot of experience well just capturing them as well right it was not uh you know first when we got there it's okay well we need to catch beavers and it's like everybody's oh that's easy it's easy because the way usually people capture beavers is because they're hunting them right so there's that's right all, i i capture them with a metal trap or a gun yeah exactly and so yeah it's mostly snares and guns in a way right so which is not quite what we do and so we do we need to adjust the traps for them you're, you're planning to put them back into the well into exactly. the wild a lot well, that's, sort of, that's sort of the essence of our job right right everything we do is going back and that's what with them as well right so you know from from caging to like james just pointed out having you know whatever 20 some individual horse trailers that we've had need to find we need to uh we were looking for uh throughout Saskatchewan and the neighboring provinces to yeah to actually getting the right um the right traps that were not too small um so uh yeah it's a i think but in this business and that's what fascinates me i mean besides working with animals as well but you know you have to be flexible you know you have to learn and it's always every time it's different doesn't matter you know well you saw it i think I, i'm sure i used that line on you as well when you came to visit the warehouse said look this is like full of things that i thought that was going to be the cat's meow in future spills and we used it once right because that was the equipment that was the thing that we used and you know that's like 15 years ago never used it once again so i think but that's the fascinating thing about all this right it's like you have to learn you have to be flexible and you can you cannot stand still absolutely not especially not working with animals right i just had this vision of Oak, uh, uh mutual of omaha's wild kingdom <laughs> i'll wait here in the tree while chris moves forward to capture the giant oiled beaver <laughs> i know talking about giant oiled beaver it's like one morning we were um we went you know to check these um the beaver trap, beaver traps, and they're actually the interesting thing was this was on a river, so they were actually the lodges, the beaver lodges were on the embankments. Normally, if you think beaver dams, right, they're inside somewhere in an estuary, and um, so you know you walk, you drive up on the boat, and you look through binoculars if you see anything, and I look and I say, oh my gosh, this is like the biggest beaver I've ever seen in my life. This thing is gigantic. 
we got closer, it turns out to be a black bear. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we, at the end of the day, we caught two uh, different times. We caught two bears. It turns out, you know, because we used um, castor oil to attract the beavers and, you know, of course, that led to a couple of safety moments, right, for the um, for the spill response in particular, because obviously there we were attracting bears, and yeah. uh, there were people cleaning up the beaches, so they were not um, cleaning up the the spill site, so they were not quite happy with that. Um, so we had to kind of retool everything. So and these were these were first year bears, so they were young and kind of uh, not particularly bright yet. So um, that. Yeah. That's uh can cause its own safety issues. So yeah, that was a fun call to get at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. How big is an adult beaver? Um, they can be fairly large. Uh so the actually in that spill, um, so so one of the things about beaver, and again, going back to the assessment and understanding what what species ranges you might be looking for. Um, beavers can't, adult beavers cannot be generally handled for an exam without sedating them mechanically. Um, and so when they first come in, you need to get a weight on them to understand you know, what dose you might need to, to give them, to sedate them. Um, so we do that within the capture box that they're in. And uh, one of the beaver that we got there was about 33 kegs. So that's over 60 pounds. So you're talking about a quite large animal, um, you know, that has very, very large teeth. And although they don't tend to bite, they tend to slam their tail and give you lots of warnings, but they can quite quickly turn around and bite you. And, and because their teeth are so large and actually go all the way back into their skull, um, they can really provide a very powerful bite. You know, these are, these are animals that spend their life, you know, chewing through trees and um, enjoy yeah, it. So. Trees, yeah, right. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. They choose the trees, that's for sure. So this might be a, a silly question, but and for capture, can you shoot them with a tranquilizer dart? You, you ever do that? N- no. So, so technically, I mean, I suppose you you could. The danger is that um, beaver are diving animals. They're aquatic animals. So their first instinct um, in response is to dive into water. That's where they're going to... So that's then they drown. So then they drown. So, um, and also they, you know, they're, they have short, stubby little legs. So they're hard to get to. It's hard to dose them correctly. So when, if we were looking at actually darting an animal to sedate it, it would be something more along the lines of like a black bear or a deer or something that you can um, potentially corral a bit more readily and that isn't going to end up heading to water as its safety. So when you're doing these river spills, pipeline, uh, rail, you could end up with black bear walking through the creek, oil mm-hmm. up to its chest. Have you experienced that? We haven't. We've certainly dealt with um, spills where bears have been in the area. Um, so, and again, those were you know frequently in Canada. Although I, I worked with bears for a long time at Paws, um, but I think that the way that they use water is different. Um, And also 
with bears, they're really going to be moving through an area for a couple of reasons, either looking for food resources or because the males are dispersing at the end of the two years that they stay with their families and then they're going out to find their own territories at, at around two years of age. So what we tend to do then is look at ways to deter them from the area of the spill. So whether that's using pyrotechnics or using bear dogs or using a series of whistles, um, you know, there's a there's a bunch of things that we can do to try and keep them out of the um, the response area, which is a lot better for us, both in terms of you know, a we don't want to deal with an oil bear; they're very complex, and b um, it presents a safety hazard. And when you see bears on site, oftentimes the immediate response is that they need to be killed. Um, so we really don't want to set that in motion and instead try to work on ways to, to ensure that we can deter them from the area, scare them from the area, um, and not end up with something where uh, we either have them in care, which is a safety issue in a temporary center, can be really difficult to contain a bear. Um, but also we don't want to set up a, a situation where they're going to be endangered because of our response activities. So here in Puget Sound, we have a large population of harbor seals. We have haulouts all over the place. Yeah. Uh, we we often, at least in drills, have harbor seal sightings as part of our injects. I'm glad I don't have to be the one to capture or house <laughs> or feed or clean a harbor seal because they can get really big. Yep. What's the process? So the process for marine mammals is a little different and especially for something like a harbor seal um, for a couple of reasons. So, so they regulate their body temperature by their fat stores, not by their fur. There, there are seals like fur seals that um, really maintain their body temperature because of their fur in the same way that sort of that sea otters do. But um, even, even those guys, particularly harbor seals really are using their fat stores. So um, the process for actually determining if they're gonna come into care is a little bit different than it would be with a bird. Um, so, you know, if you have an adult harbor seal um, that has a small patch of oil on it, it may not be worth it to capture that particular animal at the time um, because it may be more detrimental to try and bring them into care. So things like that are, you know, that, that would be an individual that would be monitored on a daily basis. Um, oftentimes, if there's young pups or, or juveniles um, and they just have small areas of oil, um, you can actually treat some of them in a, um, on the beach itself, right, where you can either um, shave that spot or potentially wash that spot. It's dependent on a whole bunch of factors, like their overall health and the age of the individual animal. Um, but those are those are determinations that we that we make more frequently with marine mammals if they're involved in a spill. Um, but we do also do that with birds. Like there are there are times where we decide that um, an individual bird is oiled to an extent where the capture and rehab process would be more detrimental and more stressful than and more likely to to have um, deleterious effect than it would be to leave it and monitor it. Um, so thinking of like a kill deer that Chris monitored for a couple of months that was nesting and that just had, you know, on the outer coverts near her belly, um, had some oiled feathers, 
but that oil was mobile. As it rained, it started to lessen. Um, it wasn't transferring, you know, to the eggshells. And he monitored her for, you know, for a month or so. Um, and also during breeding season, you lose those feathers. So she was going to lose them anyway. So there's a lot of times where when we look at, at the response process where we're making decisions from both a herd health perspective and a large event, but also down to an individual understanding of how that bird uses the environment, their stage of life, their overall health, and their, their extent of oiling. So there's a lot that goes into it. That's why we call it response and not just the rehab portion. Well, that makes that makes good sense. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> so I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> None of us do. We have good point. <laughs> well, we have new new rules for orca in Washington. How has that uh, affected your planning? Change. Big pause. Like, I don't, <laughs> no, I don't know. Have we plans? We, no, we have. They're so big and no. they swim and they eat salmon. What more do you want to yeah, add? <laughs> so, so there are new rules for orca and those rules are for the plan holders. So there are ways that they potentially impact us in that um, there may be a request for, um, for hazing of orca. Um, but it's not um, it's not the full, like we're not going to bring cetaceans into rehab. We're not going to capture a cetacean. There's not, none of that is going to happen in Washington state. Um, we're not going to capture orca, I should say. Might be, might be smaller cetaceans like dolphins. Um, but so NOAA and, and the National Marine Fisheries, they, they're the organization that has regulatory oversight with, um, with killer whales. So they're the group that is going to provide input and make a decision about what hazing and what type of hazing is going to happen. So whether that's um, using oikomi pipes to haze them, um, that's something that, that might take place. And in that case, we would probably um, reach out to IOSA, who we have an MOU with, and you know they have teams that have practiced hazing um, with Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, specifically for ORCA. So we'd probably look to them to provide a level of support for that. Um, but again, that decision is gonna be made by Unified Command with input of um, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife and NOAA Fisheries to really determine if it's warranted and under what conditions and how it's gonna take place. And then it would be up to the wildlife branch to implement that. So would, would that take place with with NOAA and fisheries would that be in the wildlife unit or would it be or wildlife branch or would that be separate from the wildlife branch generally it would be under the wildlife branch under the hazing unit yeah it just it depends if if it if if it's something that NOAA takes on themselves that they may choose to do it it, it under the environmental unit, but it should, because it's operational and it's in, you know, it's a field level operation, it should be under the, under the wildlife branch. So let's talk about the wildlife branch uh, a little bit. You know, we're, uh, it's an, it's an early standup for us in Washington. We'll be, you know, activating uh, fish and wildlife or notifying, we don't really activate them, but notifying fish and wildlife will be activating 
uh, Focus Wildlife. Focus is a is cited in in my plan. I get to Focus through your new agreement with MSRC, which I was really excited about. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm glad you That's guys were yeah come into that. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll circle back around to to that, but. Uh, for those of us who have never sat in the wildlife branch before and just see it as a, a box on the org chart, Chris, can you describe what takes place in the command post within the wildlife branch? Well, um, the wildlife branch in a sense is critical. You know, we I always kind of want to um, point out that you know wildlife branch obviously we're in ops we're you know a lot of what we obviously we're doing in a way of you know going out capturing we have facilities we're you know that's that, that side of things but then we also we have sort of one leg or one foot in in uh, the environmental unit there as well because there's a lot of planning happening as well so i think the um the it's i think for me it's it's yeah it's it's critically important that we're there because we have like we you know the interaction with everybody else that there it's it's ops it's obviously with you know um the government agencies we're it's a bit different in canada um whereas a lot of the times we are actually the wildlife branch director um in the states obviously we're automatically deferring to the agency that who are the uh, wildlife branch directors there obviously we're taking orders for them from them so uh yeah it's, i think it's it's uh that's where the rubber hits the road i mean we're that's where we're planning or we're doing it's isn't that wildlife the wildlife branch is sort of the only the one entity that's their own planning as well um so uh yeah we're basically figuring out where to go and what to do jenny do you have a bit i'm not sure if i'm eloquent enough in that and I apologize because there was just a little outburst outside with the dog, so I missed your question, Dan. <laughs> well, I was I was asking Chris about uh, the wildlife branch. Uh, we we activate uh, Focus Wildlife very early mm -hmm. for yeah. for being able to do that initial wildlife assessment. We stand up the wildlife branch in in operations i've never sat in the wildlife branch it's this this activity that happens over here in, in many ways i kind of think of it in the same way as i think of salvage it's also happening over here in the salvage branch and it's kind of doing its own thing sure. uh, separate from from the cleanup uh independent in many ways, although maybe looking for support from the rest of operations in regard to, you know, vessels and transportation and crewing and some other things. But most of the rest of the people working in operations, like if I was the operations section chief, I have very little understanding of the nuts and bolts of the wildlife branch. So I was just hoping for those of us who don't know anything about it, if you could uh, give us some sure. insight as to what's going on in there. Um, so I, I think uh, the wildlife branch is a, is a fairly unique place and it's, it's not that what we do is 
um, so fundamentally different from anything from any other, you know, section of, of operations or, um, you know, I don't understand everything about booming or everything about cleanup operations that they each have their own methods that are very difficult and, and um, have lots of different considerations. And so, you know, if you're outside of any particular unit, you may not understand the intricacies that are involved in it. And the wildlife branch is simply just another piece of that, right? Um, but because we're dealing with live animals, there is a time scale that's really critical there um, that maybe doesn't have the, the, the same corollary to cleanup operations. There's obviously really critical benchmarks in cleanup operations. Um, but we can actually say in wildlife operations, if we don't capture, you know, these 100 loons within the next five days, we're not gonna, it's not gonna happen for them. They, they will die, right? Um, so we can calculate things like that. But the, the wildlife branch really is responsible for um, understanding the full scope and scale of what needs to happen for wildlife from, you know, the initial um, piece of running concurrent sort of field operations in deterrence and in capture, um, figuring out all of the coordination of events between the capture teams and the field stabilization and transport teams to the rehab center, supporting all of the personnel and um, equipment that needs to go into um, those, you know, those um, phases, but also for making critical decisions about um, what populations we're going to look at, sort of prioritizing how we respond to situations. So if we have a spill where there's, um, let's say, like, you know, 100 Canada geese and there's 50 common loons, we know that we're going to have to prioritize the common loons because of the, the um, their natural history and the way that they use the water environment that is different from geese. And so the wildlife branch really takes some of those critical decisions and thinks about how to work those through and how to implement that process. Um, or, you know, looking at situations like if there is, um, if it's a nesting period, is it, does it make sense to actually take uh, adults that are oiled who are transferring some level of oil onto their young and onto the eggs, should those animals be captured and taken back for rehab? And if so, do you take the nest and do you take the chicks and do you take the eggs? Or would you have greater breeding success for that colony if you left them all there? Is the human disturbance enough for those particular species that any human disturbance is gonna cause a collapse of that particular colony during breeding season? Um, and some species are more susceptible to that than others. So if you interrupt a, um, you know, a Canada goose during their nesting period, they're just going to be frustrated with you and try and chase you off. Uh, if you do that with common loons, there's a, a good chance that they will leave um, and, that, and that you will cause the decline of that breeding season. So there's a whole bunch of situations like that that is in the wildlife branch to really understand and try and go through and work out in coordination with the environmental unit. Um, it's one of the reasons that um, 
there's a role that, that's sort of called the wildlife technical specialist or the um, liaison role. That's really, I think, um, a, a really interesting role for one, but also a really critical role that helps to get feedback from the environmental unit and some of the expertise from biologists and um, US Fish and Wildlife Service um, that then sort of can talk through some of the operational and tactical aspects of of the biological information that we're seeing. So it almost translates some of the biological imperatives into strategic and tactical operational aspects. Um, and so it, it really deals with a lot of the complexity of a spill and that sort of ever-changing piece. So, you know, an another good example is um, one of the things that we'll typically see um, in a spill is that we're either just in the beginning of a migration season or one is about to start. And so you can be, you know, a good way through um, an oil wildlife response and, you know, are, are fairly ready to close down operations, you think, within a couple of weeks. But what you know is that migration is going to start and there's still oil on the ground. And so there's a whole bunch of ways where, where the wildlife branch then wants to give feedback to cleanup operations about critical areas that need immediate cleanup because um, the species that are going to be coming in within the next week during migration are exactly you know, going to choose those areas with little like pocket wetlands that teal loves so much. Um, they're going to go to those areas that aren't cleaned up yet, and we're going to have another series of oiled birds, right? So, so those are the sorts of critical decision-making things that happen in the wildlife branch. Um, the other piece that I would say is really critical about the wildlife branch is giving proper information um, to the JIC um, and to the public information officer to really understand what's happening in the wildlife response. Um, I actually listened to your, I listened to a couple of your earlier podcasts, but um, I, I listened to the one about the, the JIC, which I love. She's fantastic. She's hired um, anytime we have a spill. <laughs> we would love her to be on it. She's great. She gets it. No, um, she's she's on my speed dial. She's, yeah, she's uh, fantastic. I, we with uh, we activate the incident commander. We activate uh, the PIO second and the safety officer third. We say <laughs> safety is number one, but um, yeah. man, I I I pull Suzanne in as fast as I can. Yeah, she's she's fantastic, and and we're lucky in Washington that we have some people uh, near when it is the first person who comes to mind who with the Department of Ecology who who really have spent a lot of time understanding what happens in the wildlife branch and how wildlife response rolls out, and so. Um, they really can bring that piece to the role of a PIO. And that's really critical for us because um, wildlife is often the face of a spill. And so one of the things that you see because it's the face of the spill, because the public is so drawn to images of wildlife, um, and you'll and you'll note any time now that any time since Deepwater Horizon that there is an oil spill, um, whether there's any impact to wildlife or not, frequently we'll, what you'll see is an image from Deepwater Horizon <laughs> saying that there's a spill, um, and it's an oil pelican, right? Um, and so one of the the issues for us on the wildlife branch is that those stories about wildlife can get out of control really, really quickly. And we wanna make sure that people understand that there is a plan um, that 
if people go out and try to capture birds or chase down birds um, because they see them and they know that they're they're oiled or they believe that they're oiled, that, that in fact what can happen is that they can cause more um, problems for that animal than allowing it, us to actually you know put our plan in place. Um, so one of, the, one of the field techniques that we use a lot for capture is trapping. We use that with a lot of the inland waterfowl species. And so that takes a series of days to set up, but it means that, you know, Chris can go out and look at uh, an area and determine that a trap would be a really successful um, plan to put in place for like a group of, of ducks and spend the next five to six days setting that up over time and monitoring them and then capture, a, you know, like 20 of those oiled birds at the same time, right? Whereas if we go out and we try to hand capture one of those birds from a group of that 20, we're likely to catch one or two and the rest know who we are then and are, are gonna fly off, right? So it's really critical for the branch to get that type of information out to the public that there is a plan for wildlife that is being responded to, to give them the 1-800 number to call in, to reassure them that wildlife just isn't being left to, you know, deal with this on their own or left to die, but that um, there's a concerted effort with experienced wildlife response providers on the ground. Um, and we wanna get in front of that because when people start you know, passing pictures of oiled birds through social media, pretty soon you just have people showing up trying to catch birds and then you have, you know, real safety issues, both from the oil and from the individual animals. And you also have potential real issues for us as wildlife responders, not being able to do our job because this group of animals have become so scared of people trying to capture them. They now know that they're being watched and that they're about to, you know, that somebody's gonna try and catch them. And it makes it much, much, much more difficult for us to try and catch them. So in the response world, we try to get a public message out very early. I mean, there's a there's guidance in the Northwest Area Contingency Plan about uh, getting that first message out within the first hour. It's mm -hmm. the reason I activate our PIO so quickly so that we can get good information to agency PIOs before that first tweet goes out. It's not necessarily so that we can send out a message, but so that we can help craft accurate messaging. Right. But I had not thought until this very moment about making sure that it included some kind of a wildlife message. It sounds like even in that very early stage that that would be a a key thing, a sentence in that first message, you know, stating that we have a plan for wildlife or something. I don't even know what it should say, but it sounds like it should say something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the critical thing that it should say is, is you know, one of the first duties of the wildlife branch is to stand up that 1-800 number, uh, which in Washington is 1-800-22-BIRDS. And, um, you know, being able to to just in that initial um, messaging to get the community to know that, um, that the wildlife response has been activated and, and is or will be on scene. Um, and that if, if, if wildlife is seen, oiled wildlife is seen um, to call that 1-800 number. 
and do not attempt to capture birds or, or, or wildlife on your own. But I also think what Dan just pointed out, really, it's critical. Um, you said there is a plan, and I'm always I'm a huge advocate of basically a transparency for one, especially when it comes to wildlife, which, you know, in, in what we learned from clients that there's step, there's a tendency to sort of circle the wagons and don't, don't utter the word wildlife because, you know, obviously, yeah, the, the images of wild birds comes to mind. And so I think it's very critical that you do weigh the fact that there is a plan. So, uh, you know, that there is, that we have a plan, yes. So, you know, we, like in terms of, say, Wismaker, you know, we, the message is, you know, can we have done A, B, C, D, and, or, you know, not necessarily in that order. And there's also, there's a wildlife team on the way that we, you know, assessing situations and going to go from there. And I think the public is much more forgiving in that sense if you actually, yeah, there is a plan that you follow um, and, um, you know, that we're actually aware of that we need to. Um, we're not just reacting once uh, in the good old days, say, for example, well, and even now, right, that we're acting when there is impact wildlife. There's, uh, or in the past when we ask, well, sorry, we're not really activating wildlife. Has, we, haven't in, we haven't found any dead birds yet, right, that kind of thing. So uh, it yeah. has to be proactive as much as you can be. In Washington, we do have a chance to do this now, right? We can be, we are, I mean, we're on the hook for this. We, we will roll in the first uh, eight hours or whatever it is. Yes, Chris, you are on the hook for it. <laughs> I will be calling. <laughs> you will be postponing your family events. Yeah. Not that we don't do it already, right? right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, it's a good point that what Chris just mentioned about, um, you know, no oiled birds have been seen yet. So it's one of the interesting that things that happens is that um, you hear the sort of messaging that no, no oiled wildlife has been seen. But as wildlife responders, we, we were often able to know whether anybody had been called to look for oiled wildlife. And so it was always sort of a, a mixed message. I'm not talking specifically about Washington, but this, this happens everywhere, um, where the message to the community is sort of a, a numbers game, right? Where no oiled wildlife has been seen or there's not been no dead wildlife. Um, but people with the expertise to look for wildlife have not actually been asked to look for it. So it's kind of like saying there's no incident yet. Um, there's, no, there's no oil, nobody's seeing any oil. Um, but it's not a typical gloppy big oil, right? And so somebody with expertise in understanding what oil looks like on the water would turn and say, yeah, that's a spill. Like I can identify that. Um, but, you know, but a member of the public who doesn't have that experience can't. And so we've started to see a shift now. And, it, and I think it's really important in that, in that messaging that what people are saying is that there, there are, you know, professional wildlife responders um, looking for oiled wildlife and, and have not yet found any, right? Because what the public cares about is, do you have a plan to take care of animals if they're hurt? That's what they wanna know, right? Whether it's one animal or a hundred, they wanna ensure that those animals are cared for and they're not really cared for if nobody's actually looking for them, you know? Cause then the story just ends up with, well, we found one and we're just going to kind of put that under the rug because we don't want to say that there was one oiled bird because we'd have a clean record if we didn't say that, right? So, Right. So you, 
Yeah, so you have to be looking. It reminds me of uh, yeah. of uh, Admiral Nelson at the Battle of Copenhagen, <laughs> where he puts his telescope to his <laughs> blind eye. <laughs> he, he says, "Damn, Hardy, damned if I can see anything." You know, he was. <laughs> His commander had had put up a signal that said to to break off the attack, and he's like, "I'm not going to do that." It's like, "Oh, I can't see a thing, Hardy." Right. Thus, thus we get to turn a blind eye. Yeah. Exactly. So. Yeah. We have to be looking. So we're going to have you know, we're, at some stage, although this is less of a thing with social media, but at some stage in the first day we're going to have a press conference and it sounds like it would be uh, of critical importance to have wildlife representation at that press conference other than a statement given by the incident commander to to have that subject matter expert able to uh, provide a, a confident clear message to the public would you agree with that Oh, yeah. No, I think it's, again, I mean, I think it can, well, Chang can obviously talk to first, or I think we're agreeing on that one. I think it's, yeah, it's critically important. And again, for um, the expert, you know, in what in, in, just looking locally now in Washington, the good thing about, you know, being, you know, having, having like the, the WDFW team or ecology and working with, you know, with all of us kind of working really closely together, you know, we have, I mean, they've heard the message, you know, we were confident that they actually can uh, step in front of camera and kind of talk, can't talk about it. But um, uh, for that matter, um, you know, look at Jenny, look at myself as well, that we can definitely help. And we think it's a good, it's a great idea that we can step in front of a camera and explain actually what we're doing. We always have to be careful. And we always say, right, we only talk about we, that what we're good at and what we're expert are. And that's what old wildlife. We can't step out of the sort of the lane and sense and start talking about other things. But other than that, I think it's, uh, we, you know, down the road and, that I know we kind of diverged a bit, Jane uh, and I, in, um, in having open door policies of, you know, rehab center and trying to uh, show the public actually what we do and that we're not hiding it. We've done um, Kamazu comes to mind, you know, where people were accusing us of doing, wasn't it like uh, uh, some sort of sinister uh, activities behind closed doors because we're not showing the public what was happening in the rehab center. So there's a fine line of uh, being very open about it. And like you said, pointing it out to social media. I mean, it's a huge thing, right? At the end of the day, no matter how open you want to be, you definitely want to control the message. And for us, you know, having at some point of maybe having volunteers, you know, what they're going to do is they're going to post stuff on Facebook you don't want and Twittering and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, the message has to be controlled for sure. But getting in front of the camera, talking about it, absolutely. Well, we saw in the Santa Barbara spill what happens when we don't message uh, to the public. We had hundreds of people out on the beaches with Home Depot buckets in their shorts and flip-flops uh, filling up uh, five-gallon buckets with oil. And there were was this, this huge line of buckets full of oil down the beach and no plan to dispose of it or do anything with it and people had crew oil up their arms up to their elbows and up to their up to their knees 
and uh, that yeah, had to I be. Use, I used some of the photos from that spill in a safety training. Um, yeah, we all do. It's the greatest, <laughs> the greatest thing ever. I was actually just just uh, just yesterday uh, doing some media training with Sam Sacco, and there's a a, a video from a, a news report that is used in that training that has those images as well. So that's a, it's iconic at this point, poor Home Depot. And I think, you know, that that's the, um, that's what wildlife has always faced, right? Um, is people, you know, well-meaning individuals who want to see something happen, who, you know, I mean, you remember from Refugio the picture of the man who's holding the pelican in the strap room hat, right? Um, that's from Refugio, and, and that is the situation that has always been um, the potential for wildlife and, and throughout all of the spills is that if people find an oiled animal, they want to help it immediately. Um, and so we've been facing that for, spill responders in general have been facing that for a long time. And I think it's interesting to see it sort of flip to the other side where now it's cleanup operations that are seeing people coming in and sort of trying to, you know, clean up shorelines or wash rocks. And um, whereas, you know, for a long time, people have been trying to wash birds on a beach in cold water before they're stabilized, right? Um, so that, that messaging is really, really critical to get people to understand that there is a plan, um, that wildlife are being, you know, um, looked after and, and will be responded to in this incident, right? Um, so a lot of times when we go out and are called out to a spill, um, you know, we might do a, a two or three day assessment and find zero reason to stay around because there's no threat to wildlife, right? Um, and so whether you end up with wildlife impacted by a spill or not, that messaging still needs to be, um, that, that initial messaging still needs to be the same for a majority of spills, which is that there is a plan, it is underway, and here's the number you call if you see impacted wildlife. Well, I'd say just for the same reason that I activate the PIO so early, we need to activate wildlife so that we can do this initial assessment right. so that we know whether we have impact or not, because right. hope is not a strategy. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. There's a sticky note on my computer that says that. Does it really? Yeah. <laughs> well, does everybody know I could not see her computer? I came up with that on my own. Uh, yeah, right. There you go. Hope is not a strategy. I think it's a great. I think it's a great thing, and I keep it there to um, to remind myself when I'm writing wildlife plans that you know, I, Focus has written wildlife plans for some situations where there's potentially thirty thousand birds that could be oiled in in a given scenario in offshore waters that would be very, very difficult to respond to. And I keep that note there because there has to be in that wildlife planning process a way to make it operational on the ground. And if it isn't, then all you're dealing with is hope. And so it's a way to sort of ground me in that critical thinking about whether what we're writing is good enough to actually be able to be carried out by responders. That's a, that's a really good point. So a couple other pieces to cover. You have a new agreement with MSRC, uh, a, a, a contract actually, 
I think. Um, how does that okay. change your response posture? How did that come about? Um, well, what changes, I think more sleepless nights now, like I said, we're on the hook. So there is no more. <laughs> um, no, I think um, it has been long ways coming for sure. I think um, in a way of, of being treated equally in a way, right? We, we have equipment, we have personnel, uh, we have the training, we have the expertise and all that. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think for a matter of fact, actually formalizing uh, the relationships between, we were going to be the go-to organization anyways. And I think to formalize that and also being recognized by the state that that ha something had to, had to happen, I think was, was huge for us. Um, well, you are one of the only pieces of the response organization that really didn't have planning funding, right? You right. were, you know, right. you were, you know, <laughs> kind of behind the eight ball in that we depend on you. You're a key portion of the response. And yet, unlike our planning for dispersants, for in-situ burning, for other things where, you know, we have money for, for preparedness, you didn't. No. And yeah, no, I think it was, it's a tough, it's always tough in a way, right? But I think that was something that we couldn't, we couldn't figure out, right? It was, I mean, yes, I think there was, it took a uh, change in regs and, and, um, in from from the state level that that this was going to happen i think uh we uh, jenny i just had the conversation i think today as well in terms of you know if if you're not required or if something that was not not required then nobody's going to do it voluntarily right and so i think that was the first step and we were uh have been for for years and years now trying to get to this point and I think we finally have arrived. And I think, yeah, it's equal. I mean, it's uh, like we pointed out, I think wildlife response is critical in a response setting or in a response. Without it, we're going to be, uh, like it or not, it's going to be if you have oiled animals, and even if you're not, but if you have, right, it's the, that's what's going to be on the, on the front page of the newspaper. And the public wants a plan, demands a plan that there is one. And, um, you know, that we, yeah, I mean, you're, for, you're fortunate in the sense that there's an organization like us here and, and it's local and we don't, it doesn't take us, you know, flying in from other states, for example, to deal with the issue. So. Yeah, I, I think it's a real culture shift too that, that the regulations have um, sort of advanced. I, I think one of the reasons there was no funding that was, um, you know, that was set aside for this preparedness piece, which still there isn't very much funding, but at least there's a, you know, some sort of agreement or contract requirement now in the state. Um, but, it, but it used to be, and it sort of, it goes back to why Focus Wildlife Incorporated as a, an LLC rather than as a nonprofit. Um, because in, in, a, in a lot of parts of North America, what you see is still industry um, having a spill and just it, when they come across oiled wildlife, taking them to a wildlife rehabilitation center in their area that may or may not have any expertise with oiled wildlife and just dropping those birds off and providing them a little bit of money, um, you know, at the end of sort of a thank you or here's an equipment thing. 
and, and that was sort of the idea of how to deal with wildlife in the spill. And so what Washington has done, which I think is fantastic, is really understood that cultural shift of taking it from sort of just here's the birds and you do the rehab piece and we give you like a little chunk of money afterwards into understanding oil to wildlife response as a response function and a piece of, of the operations and the planning that go into an overall spill response. And then in order to do that well, there has to be a preparedness aspect to it. And you can't do that um, if you don't have some way to ensure that there is a contractual basis for it or some means of putting some funding into it. Um, Focus Wildlife as an LLC has been in a somewhat tricky position in that, you know, nonprofits can get grant funding and they can ask for donations, um, but everything that, that Focus and really that, that Chris has done um, has been to develop, it, you know, our own um, entire equipment base that has come out of Basically, and any funding that we got, you know, any pay that we got from spill response went into preparedness and equipment, right? So we were funding our own preparedness. And, and the fact that Washington has really caught on to that and, and seen that it's been a problem in the response community to not have that preparedness piece funded um, is really critical that they change the regulations to incorporate that sort of a long-winded sort of way to, to sort of get there, but it has been a missing piece for a long time. And I think it just, it shows a cultural shift in the way that we think about wildlife response. No, and I think it's a, a necessary step because otherwise you're you're kind of like a salvage company in that you have to have expertise, you have to have uh, equipment, you have to have a, a large investment and you have to hope that there is this large spill that will eventually provide the funding to <laughs> recap for that. And that's, of course, not what we want, right? You know, Zero the, preparedness in that. That is hope as a strategy. Right. right. So, <laughs> you know, salvers, you know, they need equipment and tugs and pumps and personnel. And um, they have a huge capital outlay and may or may not ever have a job that recoups that investment. Right. And when they recoup the investment, they're, you know, they are, you know, uh, providing some uh, net environment, net environmental benefit by, you know, keeping oil out of the water or whatnot. But you hoping for an oil spill that oils wildlife, that just has a bad taste to it. Yeah. Not really something that we do. <laughs> no, not something that you do. So I'm glad we've gone. We're going down this other road. Yes, that's great. Yeah. So you have created a fixed facility. You know, we've in the past created uh, caches of equip mobile equipment that we could go to a, you know, a park or a convention center or a. Um, you know, some other location and set up tents and and create a rehab facility. But you've decided that it's better to transport to a fixed facility where you have what you need. What were your thinking in going that direction? Um, well, I think I need to, we need to qualify a bit here as well. So it's a fixed facility in itself, right? That what we wanted, we needed a base for one, um, for because of equipment, um, before uh, for equipment. Um, 
which we found here in Anacortes in a, in a warehouse. And I think in, in terms of, you know, also having the opportunity that we have in terms of working with the regulations and all to set something up that actually we can deal and the rehabilitate old wildlife, obviously. Um, the transport part, um, yes, I mean, we, we have transported birds for long, period, long stretches, that's, that's totally fine. The reason I say qualify is if we would have, say, a massive spill, there, you know, we can, we would definitely rethink and say, okay, is it a matter of bringing all the birds up to Anacortes or could we do something closer to, to the site or say Eastern Washington, you know, what are we going to do there as well? So it's always a bit of a, you know, it's a combination of things, right? We can use equipment that's already in existence, like, you know, the um, uh, MSRCs or, or, you know, like the mobile response units that can be uh, um, in addition to what we have at the warehouse. But I think in, in general, it gives you, it gives us a base. It gives us a, a starting point. It gives us a place where, yes, like you, like you can't, you, we, we can actually we can visualize what a response is like. We can go and show you. Okay, this is it. Also, gives some confidence to the um, to the regulators as well that yes, we can actually do something in this facility according to the regulations. Um, air exchanges, uh, space for per uh, kilogram of bird, whatever it is, right? The trailers existing, whatever we build is a, is according to to uh, to these regulations. So. I think it's um, it was a critical a component. It's a critical start, you know, for 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 uh, to to start the um, to a start a response. But I think it's not by by all means. It's not the end, right? We wish we would if it would be bigger uh, for one, right? But we do have the space to do it. That's for sure. Uh, Kenny. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's all true, and I, and also the the facility that Focus has is not. Um, it's not just a permanent center. So it is made up of a mixture of a warehouse space with mobile equipment. So a majority of that equipment can also move somewhere else if we need it to. But having a fixed facility does allow us a couple of things. And that is that, you know, we, we may be in a place where, let's say there, there's a spill where we can't find a building that is suitable um, for the response needs, where it doesn't have the infrastructure that we need, it doesn't have the power or the water supply that we would need. There's a lot of water that is used during the rehab um, piece. And, and so, you know, if we don't have access to a fire hydrant or two, we, that's not a space that we can use, right? And it may not have the, the actual physical space that we need for all of the phases of the rehabilitation process and space for expansion. So if we're in a spill where um, we can't find that, we can at least, um, even if it's starting out at our facility and expanding to somewhere else later, it gives us a secure place where we know that we meet the requirements. Um, and that we can run a spill of a couple hundred birds out of that facility and we know that we can do it safely. So I, I think for us, that's a really um, critical piece. And the fact that we can mobilize a lot of that equipment, in other words, we have, I think four or five different trailers for different uses, um, some of which we take into the field, but can also double back as you know a, a laboratory or an intake area or more during courses of a response. So there's a lot of flexibility within our equipment 
um, and different ways that we can use it. And so those components all work with the fixed facility um, to meet the regulations that are, that are set out um, through WDFW and the wildlife rehabilitation permit process. Well, the other advantage that occurs to me is that you're not competing for lodging and other infrastructure for all of the wildlife care personnel. You're not competing with the rest of the response for perhaps a limited number of hotel rooms for right. restaurant space. <laughs> you're, bringing, you're bringing that out of the response area where you have an easier time with logistical support. Yeah, that's a really um, that's a really key point. I think we often talk about in, in focus. We talk about remote responses and what makes a remote response. And and one of the things that we always discuss is that you can have a response in a place that isn't really that remote geographically, but doesn't have hotels, doesn't have um, some of the hardware stores that you need doesn't have the lodging, the food, all of the rest of the things that you need to support the entirety of the cleanup and wildlife response piece. And so by that definition alone, it makes it somewhat remote because it cannot meet the infrastructure needs. Um, and those are places that we find it really tough to um, get a warehouse that has appropriate size, that has water resources, you know, to get um, just, you know, all the things that we need to build in the initial days of a response to make sure that we have appropriate housing for the species that we're working with because it, it varies, right? So um, there's a whole lot that goes into that and, and having a, a fixed facility means that we can sort of, at least in the beginning, you know, we, we know that we have a safe place to handle and treat wildlife, so. To what extent do you all sense, sorry. <laughs> Um, in an overall sense too, you know, the more, it's like same thing with always, I feel like with equipment, it doesn't matter what it is, it cuts down on the unknown, right? You know what we have. It might not be the most ideal, but it's, it cuts out. We don't have to go out and start looking. I tell you, it's hard to find a warehouse. It's not like, okay, well, we just go and whatever, right? We go and get, rent something. It takes a long time. Say we're we know we do like um, we said before we do a lot of work up in canada or you know places where nobody knows who focus wildlife is or whatever try renting something <laughs> well it's renting something is one thing and then start mentioning oil and then you start mentioning wildlife and the landlord is not too keen about um giving up his facility so you know these things are you know if you have the unknown if you can cut down on the unknown um you know that's well all of us right agree it's like this is the the, the best thing in what you can have what you can do for spill preparation or the spill in its in itself yeah to what extent can the logistics section support you in that and to what extent is is your needs so unique and requires such a, a knowledge of the processes that are going to take place that you're required to do those logistics functions on your own? Well, I think logistics can come in. I mean, we've done it, right? I mean, we've done like, uh, like one spill comes to mind, like Camelus, Kalamazoo, where we actually we worked with the client who had been uh, an established relationship and they called and said, okay, well, there's this bill, we need you and what can we do before you get there? And we gave them the 
specification of the um, of of uh, the facilities or what we were looking for. And while we were on the we were on the way, they were looking, and they had you know they had like five or six possibilities at least, right? So we cut down on the time that was involved. But at least at the end, it still needs the expert the expert to kind of go look, right? I can look at a facility and in a way I think it's very quick that we can ascertain if this is possible or not. Even though for, for the entree and I, it looks, oh, it's great. It's like 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 square feet of space, right? And then immediately we go, okay, well, how about heating? Can we heat this place? Water, electricity, you know, whatever it is, right? There's like one or the other and it's, it's really hard to find all five or six or seven or eight or 10 uh, uh, different things that we're actually we, we, that we think is critical in a in a wildlife facility. So, but in the end, you know, it's like like everything else, right? I mean, we have been doing this for a very long time. You become an expert in, in a certain subject matter, right? And it, it's hard to sometimes to translate or um, writing a manual for somebody to uh, to just copy what we do. But I think we we definitely people can help. But logistics can definitely help for sure. They can do legwork or they can call and all that. But at the end of the day, we probably have to kind of, you know, check the box. That's us. Yeah, I think logistics, it's a its a really good question, Dan. I, I think logistics, or at least certainly my experience with logistics has been that, um, you know, they, they don't know, and there's no reason for them to, but they don't know what we're looking for, whether that's particular food sources or housing types or all the rest of it. And so unless we give them a very specific list and tell them where to get it, um, it generally doesn't function as smoothly as we'd like it and, and substitutions end up coming in that don't work at all, um, that can have some really bad effects. So it can be a really tricky piece. So, you know, our role with logistics is um, to try to work as closely as possible as we can to invite them to tour the facility once we are established in it to see what we do and understand how it works, um, give them cookies, lots of coffee, um, and try to really get them to, to understand that, um, that, that we want their help and that we need their help because we don't have time to be doing all of this sort of you know, logistics pieces. Um, but there are critical things where they will need our input and they can't make a decision final decision without us. Um, and that's been a real, um, it's an interesting learning curve every time that we deal with a new, you know, logistics person in a new spill is just to get them to understand that, that a simple thing like the color of a wash bin or a feeding dish um, or the height of it or where it's got a hole makes it functional or unusable, right? And so, you know, simple things that you're not going to see unless you are are working in this process so um they're they're sort of a key component that um has a really tough job when it comes to us and i know they get pretty sick of us i'm sure <laughs> so does it help to put a wildlife branch person in logistics or to bring a logistics person and set them in the wildlife branch what works what have you experienced that works well I like the latter. That's what we did at the Kalamazoo spill is we had a, a logistics person signed to us that sat in the facility so that she could see us every day, what we were using, how we were using it. And when something would come in, I could say, okay, come over here. This is why this doesn't work. 
here's where the problems are, this is why we need X, Y, or Z. And, and just that proximity um, to be able to not have to make an appointment or make a phone call, but just in the moment grab somebody and say, this is where we're running into trouble, here's why. Um, and then for them to be able to, you know, figure out how to fix that piece. So I, I really like having somebody, you know, sat right with the wildlife response group and, and working on logistics from there, but it's not always possible when it is, it's great. Yeah, it's also, right. I think the good thing is that it's also creates sort of a link between the, the, the RP or the, the client, right, as well. So there's, there's always sort of, uh, a connection there already. I say if we're separate from um, from logistics, say we're in a like different building or a different town, even right. Then right now we're doing a spill. It's basically we're it's virtual. Um, it is uh, it's difficult to explain exactly like Jenny said. Well, we need a different. You know, no, this is not the tub we need. We need it a bit differently, or it has to be higher, lower, um, or a certain type of food or fit or whatever it is. So it makes it, if they're embedded with us, I think, uh, yeah, that's always the best way to go for sure. Okay, logistics section chiefs, if you're listening to this, yeah. a person <laughs> embedded in the yeah. wildlife branch. We will baby Excellent. you and bring you cookies, we swear. <laughs> Excellent. So under the whole theory of uh, I don't know what I don't know, what else would you like to share about wildlife before we uh, come to the end of this podcast. The floor is open, Chris. Yeah. Jenny, what do you want us to know? I was looking at Jenny so first in terms of, yeah. Um, what else is there to know about wildlife? Well, I think in, in all things considered for me, again, right, it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating part of this of the spill response world. It's um, I think it's an integral part of the spill response world. But at the end of the day, I think yeah, it's sort of something that I feel like is critical. You know, it's wildlife, and for me, like probably everybody that works in in that uh, section of of the world or, or in the spill response, you know, this we we deeply deeply care what we do, and at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. It right. I think it usually shines through when we try to explain to the RP that they have to spend another whatever <laughs> couple of dollars on, on certain things. And it's not, you know, because yeah, we do care about the animals. I mean, that's what it is. And um, if, you know, I, okay, I'm sure Jenny is going to kill me with this, but yeah, we probably do it for free as well. But don't spread the word, right? <laughs> well, you started off doing it for free, right? You started yeah, as yeah, a volunteer. Yeah, so might as well, right? But I think, yeah, that's sort of, it. you have to have a passion for it, for sure. I mean, we do. And then I think that's uh, that's critical for everything we do in life, but especially for the, what we do here, that's for sure. No, I, I hear you. Well, here I am uh, podcasting for free, we're talking about yeah. the things I do for work every day. I, I must be crazy. I think for, for I think I think that might be true, but it's great. I I think for me, there in addition to what Chris said, I think the other piece, um, that in this wide range of stuff that we've talked about, that that we really haven't talked about too much is preparedness, and I think that's the piece that's really missing from the wildlife component, right? Is that everything gets very oriented toward the response piece. I'm um, glad to see that we're really um, moving 
in a in a solid way um, toward a more you know structured response piece with the with the planning standards and regulations. But the preparedness piece really um, isn't something that there's been a lot of, of real concentration on. So what do we do to not just mitigate the impact to wildlife, but to prevent the impact to wildlife? What sort of planning do we need to have in place? Um, what sort of exercises do we need to take into account? So, you know, when we do drills, there's a small component that is sort of about, um, you know, can't, how do we use the, the, the system to make sure that we can order equipment and personnel um, that gets tested at every drill. And it's an important piece to know that you can do, but, but what about the sort of larger piece of, of really looking through a drill at what the potential issues are? Like if there is um, a known scenario where maybe, you know, we're hitting an area that is an important bird area and we know that there's a potential for real impact, um, and looking at some of the strategies that could be deployed there during the course of a drill and taking those lessons learned and working out a plan for that, right? Like those are the things that I think Washington um, could really lead uh, in, in doing some formative work on that. Um, and I think it's shown some initiative in it, but I think we really could double down on the preparedness piece and really start working more on planning and preparedness and opening some of the drills to more complex um, problem solving types of, of issues regarding wildlife and that that would get us a long way. Okay, good advice. But I know my next drill, you <laughs> said, well, we're going to focus on birds <laughs> once again. <laughs> and of course, birds. and there will be some gulls and some over here and there'll be a call and yes, we'll have a wildlife plan and we'll order up equipment and we're good. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, oh, not again. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of the, a lot of really complex things that go into wildlife as there is in cleanup, right? But can be really, really complex with different species in the same area and how they use that habitat differently so they can become oiled differently, their capture mechanism is different, the way you look for them is different, therefore your equipment types are different. And so some of those complexities, you know, if we spent the time in preparedness, we could really work our way through and just be more prepared when it comes to a spill and, you know, have some sign off already because a plan would be written and people would, would you know, look at the plan and give approval for it. And so we know that that's how we're going to work it during the course of a response. And it just really helps to move the response forward more quickly, so. Well, I think it's a conversation that we should have outside of the podcast. Yes. <laughs> let's, so let's do that. Well, this has been great. I've learned a lot. Helps okay. me prepare for my own drill and, and real responses. So Jenny and Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to come Absolutely. on the show and share your experience with us. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having us, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure. So Absolutely. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us for the tactics meeting. I think that was one of our best episodes to date. Weren't Jenny and Chris super? I now know so much more than I did before about wildlife response. If you enjoyed the show, help us spread the word send an email with a link to a, to a colleague or a friend. Back to work. This meeting is over. <laughs>